Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're interviewing Jenna Perkins, a nurse practitioner, regarding her work with counseling patients about pelvic health issues. Jenna reached out to us after our recording with Dr. Sandy Tenfeld and we felt that she had a complimentary perspective and some additional insight on other pelvic health such as pain, dysfunction, and how birth control can impact pelvic health. And don't forget that by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast, you not only help us keep recording, but you also get great benefits like access to our show notes or the ability to submit questions for our upcoming guests. You can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com or you can go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. Hi, Jenna. Thank you for joining us today. So we usually start out by having our guests give our listeners a little background about who we are speaking with. So if you could talk about yourself, including your educational background, your training, and where you currently work or what you currently work doing. So my name is Jenna, as you mentioned, uh, Jenna Perkins. I'm a women's health nurse practitioner. I currently work at the George Washington Medical Faculty Associates, also known as MFA. I have a dual appointment with the departments of urology and gynecology. So I'm practicing urogynecology as a nurse practitioner. My practice interests include female urologic issues and women's sexual health mostly. I received my bachelor's in nursing from the University of Pennsylvania before I began working as a nurse in infectious disease doing research. So I graduated from Penn with my bachelor's, went on, did infectious disease research, and then went back to Penn to work towards my degree in women's health. So I attained my master's in nursing and graduated as a women's health MP in 2014. And I joined the GW Department of Urology a few months after and just recently got the appointment to the OBGYN department. That was a few months ago. Oh, congratulations. So the other question we always like to ask our guests is what informs your practice or your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do or what is most valuable to you in your practice? I think this is a great question. I've never said this out loud, but I consider myself to be a humanist and more specifically a feminist. So I think it's important that I bring those ideals into all of my interactions, and that includes work. I really value empathy and just want to make sure that I'm doing everything with love. And so that definitely influences my practice. Being a feminist and my desire to be a healer is what led me to women's health. And my commitment to women allowed me the ability to just really listen to them and treat women at some of their most vulnerable phases, like when they're suffering from incontinence or when they're having sexual pain and dysfunction. I'm also a Black woman, so I know that being a double minority influences my practice in a million different ways. Some are obvious and some I'm sure I haven't yet even realized. Love that. I love all of it. We love feminists, don't we, Stephanie? Yes, I don't think we have a non-feminist. No, we haven't. <laughs> so, 
All right. Okay, so like we said, we're going to discuss pelvic health and sexual dysfunction. So let's jump right in. So the first question we wanted to ask you, you know, especially since you had reached out to us following our pelvic floor discussion with Dr. Tenfeld is why do you think pelvic health is so important? Yeah, well, every human being has a pelvis. And the female pelvis specifically has a lot of important roles. So urinating, having bowel movements, having sex, childbirth, these are all essential human functions that fall under pelvic health. With so many functions, there is a lot of room for dysfunction. So I think it's very, very important that we are talking about these issues and really doing our due diligence to address them. So can you talk about what you typically see patients for or what are your patients' most common chief complaints? We get visit codes or visit reasons that our schedulers will put in the comment section. And my most common visit reasons are urinary tract infections or recurrent UTIs, also recurrent vaginitis or vaginal infections, incontinence, general pelvic pain, uh, pain with intercourse, and vulva or vaginal discomfort. And so that'll include things like itching or, or itching. Do your patients vary widely in age? Yeah, I see patients from, you know, 19 to 99, I would say. Obviously, some younger and a few older, but I see women across the lifespan because these issues affect women across the entire lifespan. So that's something that's really great is I can see women at all these different phases of their lives. So for your patients who have these chief complaints like pain or discomfort, are you usually the first person to see them for that issue? I would say almost never the first person that people see. Unfortunately, these patients are usually referred to me by OBGYNs or primary care offices and very often from pelvic floor physical therapists if the patient has already started the hunt for healing, I like to call it. I'm rarely ever the first person that these patients can see unless they are referred to me by word of mouth. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how your patients communicate with you as far as once they do get to you, do they communicate with you about the experiences that they've had with other providers? Yeah, oftentimes women come in saying that they feel like they've never really been heard when they bring up these issues, specifically with painful intercourse. Lots of patients say that they have been given only very basic advice that they haven't found very helpful. Obviously, why they have kind of taken the step further to seek out a specialist, but very few present feeling judged or necessarily stigmatized by their healthcare providers. But they will often say that providers will lay the blame to other issues like, oh, you have depression, so that's affecting your sexual function or you are obese, so lose a little bit of weight and maybe the pain will go away. And so they never really look into the specific issue of pain as a separate, unique concern that that deserves to be addressed fully. And why do you think that is like, why do you think they don't look at pain like singularly? I think because they don't have a good understanding of pain. And so when you don't understand something, you kind of use the tools that you have. And they're right in a lot of cases. You know, sometimes weight loss can be really good for musculoskeletal health and function. And so you can have a very small set of women who will lose some weight and then have improved sexual function. But that's not good blanket advice for you to give a woman just because she's a little bit overweight doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to have pain with intercourse. So I think it's just because they don't really know what to do. And so that they just look for things that they do understand a little bit more. 
and then try to treat those things and then just kind of hope that the pain really will come with that. So before we get into like what could cause the pain more specifically, how do you then when you're talking with your patients, acknowledge them or you know, if if they're saying, you know, I just didn't feel heard, then how do you make them feel heard? Yeah, I think the best thing and the first thing I usually do is just let them know that they're not alone. I let them know that a large number of my other patients express very similar issues. I will start by acknowledging their difficulty getting to me and really just give them space to express that frustration. So I think that's the best thing is just to let them know that they've made it to the right place. This is something that I see day in, day out, and that I will try my best to do what I can to help them. Can you talk a little bit about some of the negative encounters that these women have had and how you communicate with the women about other providers without bashing them? The best thing I can do is really just say, you've made it to the right place and verbalize my personal commitment to taking their pain seriously. And so I think that the the negative feelings that they may have had about other interactions with providers really give way for hope in a lot of cases so that they don't harbor a lot of anger towards other providers. I mean, obviously, there are some patients who will say, well, you know, I've never should have been told this or that or whatever the case may be. But I think for my patients, they are just wanting to feel better. And so they usually are just so grateful to have finally made it to the right spot, hopefully the right spot. Yeah, I ask that because sometimes we all have patients who come in and tell us about a not so great encounter with another provider. And it's always hard to sort of not get angry with them. (laughs) I think that in itself is a communication strategy. We don't really want to bash our fellow providers, even if some of them aren't doing the best. So that's why I asked that. Sometimes I'll say your concerns are textbook, if there was a textbook for this, (laughs) you know, but there is no textbook. So I think that kind of puts women at ease to know that I haven't been dealing with negligence. People aren't treating me wrong per se. They just don't have the tools to be able to treat me correctly. And so I think telling a woman with a chronic undiagnosed condition that she has a textbook case, that can be extremely comforting. And then following up and saying, but there's really no textbook on this, that really kind of removes the blame from providers that she's seen before. So I think just that it's important to make their pain legitimate. And usually the shame will kind of melt away. Do you feel that a lot of women who come in with the issues like the pain or sexual dysfunction or the vaginitis, like, do they feel shame or uncomfortable bringing these topics up to you? Definitely not. I don't know. I think it's my personality. I really just ask very straightforward questions. So it's not really a whole lot of room to wedge anxiety in there. You know, I'm like, does it hurt when you have intercourse? Do you feel burning? You know, so I'm asking very specific questions so that they feel like it's in a medical setting. And so they don't really have to feel like they have to come forward with information because I think that is where a lot of anxiety and like shame can stem from is when women have to be in charge of bringing up the discussion. It's kind of like you're responding to me. Yes, you have this. No, you don't have this. And if you do have this, let's continue to talk about it. Why do you think that women's concerns about pain and sexual dysfunction or even just vaginal itching don't get adequately addressed? Well, the feminist in me is screaming out patriarchy. 
I mean, just imagine if a large number of men were walking around having discomfort or pain with intercourse or having penile itch all the time every month. I think there would be a lot more conversations around these things. So I do blame the patriarchy. I also know for a fact that women's sexual dysfunction and function is extremely complicated. So it's not one thing or the other. It's not, you know, black and white. It's a lot of gray area. So there are so many different things that can influence sexual function that it takes a lot of experience to adequately diagnose and treat them and treat them well. I love that. So I'm still very early on in my career. So I think I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of learning about all the complex issues that affect women's health and women's sexual dysfunction. I'm going to go ahead and go down a rabbit hole here. You know, when you think about like patriarchy and like what we know and don't know. And I also think back to our recording with Toni Bond Leonard and her talking about how she didn't know like her body. And it took going to like different appointments before someone finally took the time to like talk to her about her body and how it functions. And I'm just curious in the role that you were in, do you feel that and I I know that this isn't going to come out right. I'm just going to preface I'm ready. You know, do you feel like women almost have like a low health literacy about their own bodies? You just hit the nail on the head. Every single exam that I do, I use a mirror for this very fact. Women have no clue, not just women, women and men have no clue about the female anatomy. And I'm talking about educated people, people with MDs and JDs and PhDs who cannot find the urethra on a woman. Or I have women who come in and they say, you know, Jenna, I've never been able to have an orgasm. I really want to know how to do that. And I say, okay, well, well, what do you do for orgasm? And they go, well, what do you mean? And I'll say something like, okay, well, do you use toys on your clitoris? And they'll look at me like, where, you know, where's the clitoris? So when I take the time with every single exam that I do to use a mirror so that the patient can see every single thing that I'm assessing, it really can be mind-blowing and really mind-opening for them to know, okay, that's my vulvar vestibule. I never even knew that I had a vulvar vestibule. Or simply using the right terminology and instead of saying vagina, we say vulva. It's a vulva. It's a very important organ that women have. And when we just say vagina, we skip the labia, we skip the vestibule, we skip the clitoris, we skip all of these very important things, the urethra, that are essential to having healthy sexual function. So when a woman comes in and she says to me, my vestibule hurts, I know that she has come into contact with someone who has taken that opportunity to teach her about her body. And we're going to spend a lot more time working towards treatment because she already comes with that baseline knowledge. So my dream is to really let every woman who cares to know know that they have this anatomy and know that it's important. Because that that really is going to help me as a provider because if a woman's coming in and saying, oh, it hurts when I have sex, we got to do a lot of work to figure out what it is. But if she says it hurts in my pelvic floor when I have deep penetration, right? Because she's able to identify that she has pelvic floor muscles. That's a very different treatment than It hurts in the opening, in the introitus of the vagina. That's a very different treatment plan. And so we can kind of jump to the end of healing a lot sooner if she comes in with that knowledge. So I think it's so important. And I wish every woman was able to just take a mirror and know what she's looking at while she's looking. I think that would be, I don't know, life changing for so many women. I think it's interesting to think of 
kind of like the intersection or, you know, how you say of a woman comes in saying I'm having, yeah, like you said, the pelvic floor pain and how that changes your treatment plan and and really your overall guiding of her versus someone just coming and saying I have pain. And this really goes back to the crux and the reason why Stephanie and I are doing what we're doing is we really feel that sexual and reproductive health is really completely dependent on communication. We don't, as humans, just know all these things or even though we have them, we don't know that or what what to call them or what it means. And so it's interesting that you talk about kind of taking a step further, like if you can identify what this is, how that really impacts the treatment plan or really how you work with her. Yeah, I think it also just gives you a tool so that when you go into your OBGYN's office and they say, you know, nothing's wrong, you can say, no, something is wrong. I've looked, you know, it's very red in my vestibule, Dr. So-and-so. Does that look normal to you? That's going to be a very different patient, and she's going to be taken a lot more seriously than a patient who comes in and says, you know, it hurts down there. Yeah, I agree. I think that is a great point that you can use that as a tool. And it, it makes me want to just tell all providers, you know, when they have their first pelvic exam, do this. <laughs> do the mirror. Do it. Tell them. Because at some point in their in all of our lives, we're going to have problems mm-hmm. like dysfunctions, like you said, and being able to communicate exactly where that is would be so beneficial to everyone. Yeah. I think such a complicated system just has so much room for misdiagnosis and underdiagnosis and error. So one of the reasons behind that is because as a medical community, we're just not taught about sexual function in school. So if you have a primary care provider who doesn't know vulvar anatomy, they can't relay that information to their patients. So healthcare providers are just not adequately taught about sexual function in school at all. I mean, for me, I learned most of everything that I know about pain and sex after finishing school with going to what I would consider the best school of nursing in the world. And I still had such a dearth of knowledge that I had to make up for when I got into practice. So I had to actively seek out mentors. I had to go to conferences. I had to join organizations to really supplement my learning. And none of it was mandatory. So when you have OBGYNs and MPs who have, they have to see 20 patients every day or more, usually more. It's unrealistic that they can learn all of this without the support of their institution. That is very empathetic comments (laughs) that that even the best providers aren't going to know these things. And so if one of our listeners or several don't feel bad about not knowing these things, I think hopefully that made them feel a little bit better. (laughs) And I'm still like, I'm still a no vice in my mind, so... And can I, I wanted to ask one other kind of, I guess, pragmatic piece to communication. So do you ever have women just because of shame? Do you ever have women who don't want to look at their vulva area? 100% yes. How do you communicate with them about that? So again, it's not a question of, do you want to look with the mirror? It's me handing them the mirror and saying, you can look if you want to. So, you know, I'm the same way I naturally will put you in the stirrups, asking for consent the whole time. I'm going to hand you the mirror. I'm going to say, put the mirror on your thigh and hold it this way. And you can decide at that point if you don't want to look. But if you don't want to look, just they're just usually going to turn their heads and not look or act like they're looking just to kind of give me some satisfaction. I ask for consent throughout the entire exam. So they absolutely don't have to look. But if they decide, oh, this is actually something that I don't feel that ashamed about or 
the, the mirror is already in their hand or laying right next to them. So it's easily accessible. So they don't have to think about it. Again, that space that allows anxiety to kind of build up is not there. It's removed from them. My follow-up question to that is, do you find that if a woman kind of felt anxious to you being like, hey, we're going to do this mirror thing, do you find that they look or don't look? Most women will look. Yeah. Yeah, most women will look. Some people won't look, but most women will be at least interested. And also because I do a very detailed exam. So even if you're not looking with the mirror, I'm saying... This is the mons. This is the labia majora. This is the labia minor. So even if you've opted not to look, you're probably like, what are these words that she's talking about? And usually women will look when I say, this is your urethra. Because they're like, what? I thought it was here. Or, you know, I thought it was inside. So that really kind of gets people attention. So once I point out the urethra, then the other things that you already have that buy-in. They're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I peed from there. And how could I have not known that that is the spot that I peed from? And so once you have the buy-in there, then you can point out the vulvar vestibule and they're like, okay, I didn't know what that is, you know? So no, I think that's really interesting and, and really cool that you do that. I've personally have never had anyone do that. I think the only time I got offered a mirror was one of my deliveries. They asked if I wanted to see. And that's probably the worst time to look. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> How terrifying. Yeah. How terrifying is that? <laughs> it was like, oh my God, it's a whole nother being coming out of there. And it's all distorted and bloody and swollen and like not its best. Like you want to see it at its best. And I think I actually said no, because I'm like, when I'm pushing, I'm closing my eyes. So I'm not looking anyway. So <laughs> like, I, <laughs> even if I wanted to look, my eyes are closed. So. <laughs> Yeah. That's a but good no, point. But I just think that that's neat that you take the time to do that. And, and what a very woman-centered approach to doing a woman-centered exam. Yeah, and it's something that's just missed. And it's because, again, it's something that you have to, as a provider, say, here is a point where we could build on in the exam. But you have to take that initiative. In the type of healthcare system that we work, most people don't have the ability to change their exam. They don't have the ability to add 10 minutes to use a mirror. Because the expectation is that you have to see so many patients. So for me, working in a specialty, I had a little bit of wiggle room, especially when I first started. I didn't have all eyes on me to produce. It was more, we want to support you learning. And so I was really able to create an exam that felt like me, felt like a reflection of me and what I want to bring to the visit. So again, it's not anything to like blame the providers who don't do this or shame them because they probably haven't been able to have the opportunity to do this. And this is something their exam was taught to them in school. So yeah, but hopefully someone's out there listening and will decide, okay, well, I'll use a mirror in my next exam. My last question on this, if I can have one more, Mm -hmm. would be, do you find then in subsequent appointments with these women that they seem more knowledgeable or are able to pinpoint more or describe what's happening more accurately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that is so great is that they can see progress. So if you have a woman that has lichen sclerosis, which is a bovard skin disorder or eczema or all of these things that you can see on the exam and you're treating them and they start to get better and you pull out the mirror at the second or third exam, And they can see with their own eyes that they are less inflamed, less red, no bleeding. You know, for the menopausal woman, if you show her on exam how 
you can create a little tear just by doing the exam and show her that she's bleeding. It's going to make sense that she's bleeding after sex or bleeding with sex to her. So when you can show her at the follow-up exam after she's been using whatever treatment you prescribed for her, hey, look at this. You're no longer bleeding when I touch you. That is going to create an environment where they are committed to it because they have ownership of their own health. And it's not just me telling them to do something. It is us working together to achieve a goal. And we've had a few providers who have said, the first time I see a patient, sometimes I put in more in that a lot of times I'll run late or putting in more in the forefront can really shorten up appointment times later on. Do you find that investing that time in the beginning does shorten up follow-up appointments or not? Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not asking the same questions, right? Because the teaching and the education and the treatments are so very specific to whatever disease process is causing the pain that if they know what that process is or know a little bit about it, then they're not going to be asking again, oh, you said that this pain is in my vestibule. Where's my vestibule again? Because they already know. So you don't have to re-explain things. And then again, these patients just do overall better because they leave with all of this knowledge. And so they want to go and look at pictures and talk to their daughters about the correct anatomy. And I'm so excited when I had a few patients come back and say, you know, I taught my toddler that it's vulva, not vagina, because we have so many well-meaning women who want their daughters to have a better experience than themselves. And so they'll teach them the actual words, right? So they're teaching them vagina. But when you can just tweak that a little bit and say vulva, that's a whole nother generation that's coming up that they're going to have a much easier time at their future visits. So it's not just cutting down the time you have to spend with the patient. It's also just creating an environment where you're going to be more effective for generations to come. I was going to say how you, you tell when Annabelle was little, like you were like, we're laying around with our vulva out. <laughs> oh, yeah, or I say hanging out with our labias out. Oh, labia, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I would say hanging out with our labias out. <laughs> my my husband was just mortified when I'd say that. <laughs> That's awesome. Do it for your daughter. And think of all of the women who have been subjected to molestation. And we're in the Me Too movement right now. And so how many girls are going to be able to come to their parents and say, you know, when we think about the stereotypical show me on the dial where he touched you, right? When a woman can say, when a little girl can say, he touched my labia. That's like, that's a game changer. That's really a game changer. Yes. And you have a son now who will pick up on this. I think you are doing a great job. Women's female body parts. It's going to be real at our house. (laughs) My son calls it the other day he goes, I didn't know words that start with B, ball, balloon, baseball, vagina. Vagina. <laughs> vagina. I'm like, well, <laughs> it's close. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's good that you're thinking. That's hilarious. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. We, we digress. digress. But. So I used to work as a triage nurse. Um, in a large university clinic, like where you probably work now. And so I just talked on the phone with patients all day long. And one of the specialties I was the triage nurse for was our vulvar specialist. And one of the most difficult part of my job is women who frequently call and almost obsess about their vulva, vagina. They call maybe daily or weekly and talk about it for a long time. It was always hard to sort of 
I guess, help them move mm-hmm. through that. Do you have this experience? Some of our listeners may have similar experiences if they work in these type of settings. And how do you sort of manage that? Yeah, the same way you would manage anything else that you don't really know about, right? You refer to a specialist. So if you are... As a patient coming to a point where you feel like you're not getting any answers, get another opinion. And as a provider, if you feel like you can't provide the answers, seek out a specialist or seek out someone who can teach you how to identify these common things. Women don't usually complain about vulvar discomfort if it is not there. It is usually not something that a woman is like, I really want something to be wrong with me. So I'm going to pick vaginal pain or vulvar pain. Like out of all the things that you can pick, I'm inclined to believe that a woman would pick like I have chronic migraines or I have chronic back pain if she wanted to be making up some sort of disease. But who wants to make up having recurrent vulvar pain or infections? If she says that she has something going on, she probably does. And we just have not done a good job of identifying the issue. So the first and foremost thing is to believe women, you know, no matter if you think she's a difficult patient, if she has bipolar disease, if she is 500 pounds, if she says that she has vaginal or vulvar pain, believe her and refer her to someone who might be better able to address her issues. Mm-hmm. I like that. So going on to kind of the causes of pelvic issues, vulvar, vaginal issues, and sexual dysfunction, can you talk about what might cause those things and what the evidence is on, on those causes? Sure. So there are some major categories that I like to think about when I'm coming to a diagnosis. So my differentials. So my differential will include any sort of muscle dysfunction. So are the pelvic floor muscles themselves impaired or not? And usually with women who have vulvar vaginal pain, the pelvic floor muscles are oftentimes connected. It might not be the only or sole issue, but if you have a woman who has pain with intercourse, urination, any sort of just general pelvic pain, I'm willing to bet that she probably has some sort of muscle dysfunction along with that. Another is tissue issues, I like to call them. So what's the skin doing? Is there an infection present? Is there some sort of chronic skin issue that has not been diagnosed or that has not been adequately treated? Because that can definitely lead to pain. It can cause furthering of any sort of underlying muscle dysfunction because anytime you have pain, muscles respond to pain. And so if you have a woman with a skin disorder, and she also has normal muscle function or abnormal pelvic floor muscles, those muscles are going to tighten up in response to what irritation is there. So they're going to just have like a guarding response. And so that's going to cause a furthering or a worsening of that pain. So muscles, tissue, and then hormones. Hormones can cause tissue issues. They can cause dryness. They can cause a lot of the dysfunction that we can see physically on exam. So if that is a woman who's going through menopause, whether that is surgically or naturally, there are going to be changes to the vulva and changes to the vagina that are going to make you more prone to injury or more prone to pain. Women who are on birth control, that definitely changes the hormone makeup that your body has naturally. And so that's going to make you more likely to someone who's not on birth control to suffer from specific types of sexual dysfunction. So muscles, skin, and hormones are kind of my big three differential. And we can break it down further, definitely within that. So you had just mentioned hormonal 
uh, effects on the pelvic floor and vulvar health. And this is something we had also briefly discussed on the phone. And I was just curious, could you talk more about the evidence about hormonal contraceptives causing issues with painful sex or vulvar pain? Yeah, for sure. So specifically, there is a diagnosis called vestibulodynia. So once you do your mirror exam with your provider, you can point out where the vestibule is. And if you have any pain or dynia there, then you might have the diagnosis of vestibulodynia. So it's a common cause of painful sex. There's an estimated prevalence of 15% of women presenting for general GYN care. The study was published in 1991 in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology by Dr. Martha Goish, I think is how you pronounce it. But basically what they said is that 15% of the women who presented for general GYN care had some sort of vestibulodynia or pain in the vestibule. And there's a growing body of research that shows that some of these cases are linked to taking low-dose hormonal birth control. So what the pill does is it decreases the testosterone that's made by the ovaries. In addition to decreasing how much testosterone you produce, it also increases a protein that binds to testosterone and estrogen, and it's called sex hormone binding globulin. So with that, you have decreased testosterone being made. And then you also have the binding of these testosterone and estrogen hormones. And so if it's all bound up, then it basically cannot be used. And so the glands in the vestibule greatly depend on testosterone to do things like secrete lubrication and just to be comfortable and not have pain. So what we see is that when you not all the time, definitely not all the time, but in some women, if you take the pill, it's going to cause these hormonal shifts and it's going to lead you to have dryness and pain with intercourse, even lead you to have recurrent urinary tract infections or recurrent vaginal infections because of the hormone shifts that happen and the toll that it takes on the vulva and on the vagina. So there was a study that actually suggests that the pills with the newer progesterone, so those lower dose hormonal pills will greatly decrease more so than the older ones, the testosterone. And so you have women who are on low dose birth control, maybe more than they were a few years ago, a generation ago. And so we're seeing a higher incidence of this, this vestibulodynia that's caused by the birth control pill. And there's lots of research that's being done on this. So if people are interested and they want to look at some studies, they can join the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. It's called ISHWISH. I've learned so much from this organization. I tell everybody about it. If you have any sort of interest in it, I would definitely have you join that organization. And then there's also the National Vulvodynia Association, where you can find access to a lot of the research that's being done on vulvodynia. So if you think about what the vulva is, so that external organ, the external vagina having pain, that's vulvodynia. And vestibulodynia is a subset of that. And so, yeah, we definitely have a great body of research that shows that vestibulodynia and vulvodynia are tied to being on birth control. And not just the pill, other birth controls can cause it too, but the research is still being developed. So when you told us that on the call, I had totally never heard that before. And at first I was like, what? Really? <laughs> is this is this evidence-based? And I looked it up and I was kind of shocked. And I've been sharing this with every GYN provider that, that I work with. And a lot of them didn't know it either. And so hopefully even having you on here, a lot of of our listeners will learn a little bit more about that. 
So kind of going into that then, our last episode, we had Dr. Christine Dellendorf on who talked to us about shared decision-making with contraception. And we definitely didn't bring up this issue, but how would you potentially, if you were, I'm sure you do counsel women on contraceptions and how do you talk about this potential issue women may have either with their birth control pills or when they consider starting birth control? Yeah. So the same way that you would tell a woman that she could develop migraines or a blood clot or mood changes or weight gain or all these other side effects that we do a great job of counseling women on, you just add a little bit of vaginal dryness or painful intercourse at the end of the conversation. And you really leave it open because not every woman who you put on a pill is going to develop this for sure. But in those women that it does happen, it can be completely debilitating one and then disheartening because you had no clue that this could even happen. So the same way that most women are not going to get a blood clot, but if you mention that when you're counseling and it happens to a woman, she knows what to do. She knows that she can call you. And so it should be the same with painful intercourse. If you develop painful intercourse or if you have a worsening of discomfort with sex, call us. And then we can refer you to someone who has been trained to be able to identify the causes of this sexual dysfunction. And again, I I do want to say that the pill is not the worst thing in the world. It's done a lot of great things for women. So the feminist in me is always like, oh no, don't, you know, don't bad talk the pill. It's done so much. But I think that we also have to leave space for criticism and anything so that we can grow. And so if we are vocal with women and share that this is something that can happen, I think that the research that we need and the communication that is lacking right now is going to just naturally increase because women are going to say, hey, I'm not crazy. I'm not making this up. It's not that I don't love my husband anymore, or it's not that maybe I'm a lesbian and I didn't know it. And is this what all women feel? You know, all these questions that my patients tell me that they have, if you just add a little tagline on the end, if a woman chooses to go on the pill, hey, you can look out for this. And if it happens, let me know. I think it can be very, very beneficial. And if a provider isn't ready to counsel about having painful intercourse, I would just say have a a contact in your office, like have someone that you can refer these patients to so that when they call your triage nurse, your triage nurse is going to be able to say, hey, come in and Dr. So-and-so or nurse practitioner so-and-so will meet with you and give you a referral because we have people who can help you out with this. So just really reaching out to the community because we are out there, it can really start to change your practice. I have to add too, in addition to birth control pills, I've seen a lot of women who breastfeed, who have no idea that that can cause vulvar atrophy. And so I would add that I think providers just need to do a better job at communicating about that potential side effects as well. Cause you know, we love breastfeeding and would always encourage it. But I think like you said, like just letting women know that, Oh, and you breastfeed, this might happen because a lot of the time they're having this side effect and they have no idea that it's from breastfeeding and that it's actually easily treatable. Yeah. And when you have a newborn at home, your relationship is already kind of stretched. And so just knowing that, again, I'm not crazy, I'm not making this up can really do a lot of benefit for the relationship, because that's something you can talk to your partner about, right? You have the the tools and the knowledge to say, breastfeeding is causing this issue, and it should get better. I'm going to go talk to my provider. 
these are the things that we can work on in the meantime. We can use more lube. We can, you know, do all these other things. So usually we don't get into this is as a practice, like this is what you should do. But I'm just curious because if I'm curious, likely perhaps someone else is. So then what is your, if you do find that their issues are related to their birth control, what do you do? Yeah. So if a woman comes in and they have seen me, I will give them the data. So I will do labs. I will have them come back in a couple of weeks so that we can talk in person, answer any questions. Questions always come up the week that you're waiting on your results to come back. And then when they come in, I hand them the results and I say, look at your levels. Look how low your testosterone is. Look how low your estradiol is. Look how high this SHBG number is. So I just give them the data. I give them the information. And I talk to them the same way that I'm talking to you guys with the expectation that they can understand what I'm saying and that they are going to continue to do more research and approach me with more questions as they come up. So do you usually change birth controls or can you just use lube? So every case is different. Sometimes... Going off of the pill and using a different birth control can be very helpful. Sometimes just taking a break from birth control. But lots of different treatments, we often have to supplement the amount of testosterone and estrogen that these women have. And so we'll use like a topical compounded hormone gel that's usually applied directly to the vestibule. There are testosterone supplements that can be implanted. There are a million different things that we can do to get to what the root of the issue is. But once the woman has the data and I can say to her, you know, your testosterone is contributing to your pain, then we can make a decision together on how best to fix that. If it's going off of birth control, using something like an IUD or supplementing or other options, we can really get into it then. So you mentioned some resources like Ishwish and the National Vulvodynia. Are there any other resources that you would suggest for providers? I would say those two or one of those two is a great place to start. And once you're in the community, then it just builds on itself naturally. But those are trusted resources. They're doing the research. They're doing the work. They're getting the message out. And they're really good at what they do. So I think the National Vovodini Association and International Society for Study of Women's Sexual Health are the places to go. And I just want to take the time to thank them for all of the work that they have done and continue to do on behalf of women. And just as like a side question or side note, do they offer continuing education credits for providers? Like, is this something that they can get credit for, for learning about? Absolutely. You can go to the conferences and you can definitely get credit. Okay. So you have talked a lot about communication tips throughout the show. And I'm just curious, do you have any last ones you'd like to add or anything else you'd like to discuss as far as communication with women regarding vulvular health? Yeah, I would just say the mirror is so awesome. Definitely believe women and recognize where you can't help any longer and refer and be willing to communicate that to the patient. Don't be ashamed of not knowing because that's super important to get women into care. So believe women, really believe them when they say that they have pain. And I think that's going to influence everything you do thereafter. Also, for providers who don't specialize in this area, could you let our guests know where they could go to find providers who specialize in vulvar vaginal health? 
So the websites for Ishwish and National Govardhani Association both have places where you can look up providers on their website. So that's the best place to go. If anyone is in the metro DC area and looking to establish care, the best way to contact me is probably just to Google Jenna Perkins GW. And I have an online place where you can schedule. I also recently started an Instagram page. So it's Discover Her Health. Discover, like Discover Her Health. So you can find me there too. And what kind of things do you put on your Instagram? Honestly, at this point, not a whole lot. But (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it and really trying to figure out what it is that people want to see from me. Definitely not giving out medical advice. You won't be able to find that there. But just like an extension of myself. That's, I guess, what I would call the Instagram page. Okay, great. We will definitely start following you. So Jenna, we would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? No, that's it. I just want to thank you both for the work that you are doing. This is awesome. Getting the word out, meeting patients and providers where they are. I think this is very important, amazing work. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.